This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi there again, listeners. Jennifer back again with another bonus episode for your listening pleasure. Today's interview features an awesome new book by art historian Barbara Blumick, whose book, Florine Stedheimer, A Biography, is the comprehensive book on the artist and establishes her as one of the most innovative creators of the early 20th century. Florine Stettheimer was a feminist, a multimedia artist, who documented New York City's growth as the center of cultural life, finance, and entertainment between the world wars. During her first 40 years, spent mostly in Europe, Florine Stettheimer studied academic painting and was aware of the earliest modern styles prior to most American artists. Returning to New York, she and her sisters led an acclaimed salon for major avant-garde critical figures, including Marcel Duchamp, the Stieglitz Circle, and numerous poets, dancers, and writers. During her life, Stadheimer showcased her innovative paintings in more than 40 of the most important museum exhibitions and salons. She also wrote poetry, designed unique furniture, and gained international fame for the sets and costumes she created for the avant-garde opera Four Saints in Three Acts. Stedheimer's work was also socially progressive. She painted several identity issue paintings, addressing African-American segregation, Jewish bigotry, fluid sexuality, and women's new independence. This biography presents one of the first comprehensive readings of Stedheimer's art. Barbara Blooming establishes Stedheimer's place as one of the 20th century's most significant and progressive artists, and also examines why her unique work remains relevant today. It was so much fun to chat with Barbara Blumick, who is an expert on Florine Stettheimer's work. She's written extensively on Stettheimer, and she co-curated the artist's 1995 Whitney Museum retrospective. Blumick is also a former director and chief curator of five art museums, including the Smithsonian's National Design Museum and the Guggenheim Hermitage Museum. So we are in really good company here. She has also curated over 70 exhibitions, published extensively, and has lectured and taught internationally on art and design. In the show notes and blog for today's episode, I have included a link so that you can order your own copy of Florine Stettheimer, A Biography, which I highly recommend to anyone who loves reading and learning about modern art. And now, onward to my conversation with Barbara, who joined me via Zoom. So, Barbara, thank you so much for being on Art Curious with me today. It's my pleasure. I loved this book about Florine Stettheimer. It was delicious, and I think it's just right up my metaphorical alley. So I really only knew some very basic details about her work going into this and really very little about her life. So I was pleased to be able to have the opportunity to dig in and get to know her. So just to get us started, could you please tell us a little bit about how we have typically viewed Florine Stettheimer and her works? Well, typically, people haven't really known much. 
And when they did know about her, it was as this eccentric, shy spinster who didn't show very much. And when she did exhibit, it was mostly to her friends in a salon that she had with her sisters during the 20s, 30s, and 40s in New York City, where really she was known because of her wonderful friends who came to the salon, like Marcel Duchamp and Georgia O'Keeffe and, and Isidore Duncan, the the poet Carl Sandburg, really the the friend, she was no far more from her friends, and maybe the large cathedral paintings at the Metropolitan Museum, which are huge and very funny, but people really didn't know much about her. I'm especially interested in hearing uh, in your book, you were talking about a a critic or a historian named Parker Tyler, who seems to be at the uh, the center of all of this misinformation that we've gotten. Who was he and what did he get wrong? I mean, you're talking about her being called a spinster and someone who never right. showed. What did he do to make this <laughs> the central belief about her life? Well, unfortunately, um, because of a few other reasons that she wasn't so well known, which make perfect sense given the market. Um, but he, about 10 years after she died, when the real, the fad of art at the time was abstract expressionism, which is the opposite of what Stedheimer and George O'Keefe and other artists before then were painting, he wrote a biography of her. Um, and he was very Freudian and wrote in this very purple prose that's almost impossible to understand. <laughs> but since he never met her, he met her maybe once when she was very elderly, he wrote this very exaggerated idea of her, which, and he even admitted it in the book, that he exaggerated and wrote kind of a fantastical idea of her. And he put in some quite outright lies, and he claimed that he imagined that she wanted all her works destroyed when she died. And he said she was so devastated at the first exhibition of her life where she didn't sell anything that she never showed again to the public except in her salon to very six, you know, uh, select friends. When in fact, she sewed 46 times in her life, every year practically of her adult life, in the first Whitney Museum biennial, all the early Museum of Modern Art exhibitions, in the Paris Salon, every major museum and every gallerist in New York City begged her to show in their <laughs> museums and galleries. So, so like it was just, she showed, all, the only woman artist at the time who showed more than her was her friend, George O'Keefe. So that is quite a disparity. I mean, it's crazy. I, I often love to come back to the idea about the mythos that's surrounding so many artists yes. and how there's this idea of someone as a suffering genius or, as you're mentioning, in, you know, an eccentric spinster or a shut-in, whatever the myth is. But it is so hard to break away because writers and critics especially, I think, love to perpetuate them because they just make good stories. It's, yes. it's like the equivalent of clickbait in so many ways. So you had so much work ahead of you, I can imagine, with trying yes. to clear up so many of the actual facts of her life. Tell us a little bit about 
your work with her, you you mentioned to me kind of off off camera here, off mic, that you've been working with her for so long and on her for so long. What was your process like and what were your goals specifically for this biography? Well, I actually started 25 years ago for my PhD. I was at Yale and I had to write a PhD and my professors all thought I was going to write about some male artist that was well known, like Winslow Homer, um, images of women or something. Mm -hmm. And I was actually reading a letter that George O'Keefe wrote to some unknown woman named Florine Stettheimer about how her husband, uh, Alfred Stieglitz, was taking a bath and how he injured his finger by pulling up his underwear and he slipped in the, <laughs> the, the, the wet bathroom. And he insisted they go to the emergency room. And she said, no, why don't we just take a little popsicle stick and put some tape around it? And he, no, no, he had to go to the emergency room. So they sat for hours and finally got to see a doctor and the doctor put a popsicle stick and some tape around it. And she wrote to this woman, oh, aren't men ridiculous? So I went to see who the woman was she wrote to. And Yale Beinecke Library happened to have these four fantastic, funny, colorful, wonderful paintings by this woman named Florine Stettheimer. And they also had all her letters and these fabulous diaries she wrote. So I said, I'm just going to write about her. And uh, the Whitney hadn't done a an exhibition on her work, but they'd done all the other modernist artists from the period. And the director, who I met at the time, Tom Armstrong, said if I wrote my dissertation um, and Yale Press said they'd publish it, he would let me do um, a retrospective of Florine Stettheimer. So I was all set. And so we did. I wrote the book um, and we did a big retrospective of her. And all these paintings came out of the basement where they'd been since 1946 when her friend Marcel Duchamp did a major retrospective right after her death at the Museum of Modern Art because she was so important in 1944 when she died that her friend Marcel Duchamp, who loved her paintings, and the Museum of Modern Art, whose curator at the time thought she was so important in 1944, that they gave a huge retrospective exhibition of her work that then traveled to Chicago and the Museum of Fine Arts in San Francisco to huge crowds. Um, and then I gave, we, we did one at the Whitney in 1995. And then, I did a couple articles on her over the next couple of years and then put her aside thinking other people would work on her and I became a museum director and did other things. And then I watched over the next 20 years where art critics and writers and curators kept going back to Parker Tyler's book and repeating these lies that she wanted all her paintings destroyed when she died, that she never exhibited, that she was this shy spinster. And I thought, I just can't die without correcting the record because she disappeared again back into the basements. All her paintings went right back in the basement. Oh, wow. So I just thought, no, okay, my last thing before I disappear is this woman was First of all, she not only wasn't shy, she was an avid feminist. I found an incredibly early erotic painting of a woman's genitals she painted in 1920, 30 years before the feminists did these erotic women's body parts. 
And uh, she did some very highly controversial political paintings in the 20s. And she was this incredible feminist who was very professional. She hauled her own paintings to 46 exhibitions by herself without a gallery, you know, and was very self-confident. Um, so all of these things about her weren't true, and she was incredibly innovative for her time. So I thought she needs to be in all the art history books. She's she's left out of most books on 20th century art, on women artists, and she did, she's one of the most important innovative artists of the time. So I thought, okay, I just can't let this stand. So... I spent five years and 460 pages and wrote this book. I, I love it. And thank you for doing it because I just kept falling in love with her so much while reading this because she is such an interesting character. Oh, yes. uh, but what happened that she isn't so much of a household name? You know, you're talking about that she's such good friends with people like Duchamp and Georgia O'Keeffe. Right. How come she's not on that same level, that name recognition level? Because it seems like she had so many accolades and, and obviously so much attention in her lifetime. So what changed? Well, there are basically three things. Number one, in terms of the Parker Tyler book, what do you think, if you're a journalist, what do you think is more interesting to write about? An eccentric woman who wanted her paintings buried with her or a professional, um, ambitious artist who just works very hard and exhibits. Absolutely. One <laughs> is a much bigger journalist story. The second thing is... O'Keefe, if you look at the two women, George O'Keefe, who was younger, was very ambitious and looked around, didn't have much money, and found the biggest art gallery in the country run by a guy named Alfred Stieglitz, who was older. He was married. She seduced him away from his wife and convinced him to marry her. He promoted her work sold her work, found collectors for her work, and he put did shows of her work, took care of her. Stedheimer was very wealthy. She loved her work. She didn't want to sell it because she knew and always wanted her work to end up in museums. She didn't want to or care about selling it. So Stedheimer put the value when she showed her work at galleries. But she put a $3 million price on it so it can sell. I love it. Wow. Which is hysterical. So she, she wanted to live with her work. And she told her family always and her lawyer that at her death, she wanted them to go into museums. And because she was always in these exhibitions and the critics always picked her work out and said, Miss Stedheimer's work is the most colorful or wonderful, that she knew, and they did, when she died and her lawyer offered her work to museums like the Met and the Modern and Boston and Virginia and San Francisco, all around the country, and all of them accepted the work, and that's where they are now. Almost all of her work, except for two of her major works, are in museum collections. They, they were accepted. Yeah. So... They aren't, weren't out in the market. The trouble is, when they were accepted, when she died in the late 40s, early 50s, abstract expressionist happened. So these wonderful, funny paintings with all these figures 
were out of fashion. So they went in the basement. Okay. Yeah. But meanwhile, George O'Keefe's paintings were in the basement too for a while. But they also then came back on the auction market and the collector's market. And little by little, as they went up at auction, they became more and more valuable. And when auction prices go up, the publicity notices. Absolutely. And suddenly they get a lot of attention. Same thing happened with Frida Kahlo. Yes. They were out in the market and they got publicity. Well, no one saw Stedheimer's paintings except Andy Warhol. He met the curator of the Metropolitan and he thought, well, I think Warhol will like these paintings I have in the basement. Warhol fell in love with them and he told everyone that Florine Stedheimer was his favorite artist. In fact, he took one of her pictures and put it in an exhibition that he put together. Oh, I So did that. Jasper Johns. He also fell in love with Stedheimer's paintings that he saw in the Metropolitan Museum basement. I love that. What is it specifically? Is it the color, kind of the, the joie de vivre that she brings to yes. her work of art? That's what excites them or excited them about it her It was works? also popular culture. She painted the popular culture... And the excitement of New York City in the 20s and the 30s. And that's exactly what Warhol was painting in the 60s. So there's actually a lot in common I in love their that. work. One of my favorites that you reproduce in the book is the image of women who were shopping. Uh, oh, at, yes. At the, the Spring sale store. at Bendel's department yes. store. It was wonderful. I, mean, I love that What piece. a crazy picture. Here are wealthy women leaping over each other to grab a scarf out of each other's hands. <laughs> and, you know, bending over backwards to try and see their butts in the mirror to see if the dress makes them look fat. There's so much joy and just the humor that you're talking about in these works of art. It's like I couldn't stop looking at the reproductions in the book because they're just so much fun. And every time I would look at them, I would see something new that would make me smile. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but please stay tuned and support us by listening and supporting our sponsors. We will be right back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can also be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about things like doom scrolling and sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, overeating. Stress is a fact of my life as I try to manage growing art curious and working on it full time while still trying to have a normal family life, managing my commitments, and trying to find any semblance of personal time. Sometimes I don't work out enough. Sometimes I snack a little bit too much. So stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and to grind all the time, here is your reminder to take better care of yourself, to do less, and maybe try some therapy. That's why I recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And for me, the convenience factor is just unmatched. I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. There's no commuting to a counselor's office, no waiting in a lobby, and my office or bedroom can now be my therapy sanctuary. And that is pretty cool. And I want you to give it a try and see if online therapy can work for you to help lower your stress. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Art Curious podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I really want to talk about, you mentioned earlier, uh, the erotic works that she created that you discovered. I know for sure I definitely want to talk about the image that you've reproduced on the cover, the uh, the self-portrait. Could yeah. you lead us through that? And also the other one that you're talking about, I believe, is, is the image of her sisters? Yes. Well, the, the nude self-portrait on the cover is so interesting because so far we've only found two other earlier nude self-portraits by women. I mean, our idea of nudes throughout art history were always nude women that male artists painted to kind of look at privately, sexually, so they'd kind of get off on them. Yeah. And women, until like uh, 1909, a, a German woman didn't paint themselves naked. Well, when Stedhammer was born in 1871, and the average lifespan of women born in 1871 was their late 40s. Well, when Stedhammer was about 46, she painted this full-length nude, and she painted herself in the exact same pose and the exact same size painting as Manet's painting of the prostitute Olympia. Yes. So first of all, that's a bizarre, ridiculous thing to do <laughs> because here she is, this wealthy, upper-class Jewish woman painting herself in the same pose and size as a prostitute, the exact same pose. Then instead of having a maid behind her holding a bouquet of flowers, she's holding it herself. And unlike Manet's Olympia, whose hand is discreetly covering her pubic area, Florine paints her pubic hair showing bright red, white exposed there for everybody to see. And she's not looking away demurely She's propped her head up and she's looking directly out at the audience with her very characteristic facial features, looking at you like, yeah, you want to look at me? Sure, <laughs> go ahead. So it's this incredibly feminist woman's gaze. It's like, and and whereas also most male nudes, the, the most... Um, 
defined parts of the body are the sort of luscious breasts and the pink skin. But Stedheimer's most detailed parts of the body are her face and her feet. I love it. Which is, I mean, her feet are beautifully detailed, <laughs> right? They are. So it's, it's like the woman's experience of her own body. And she's sort of taking and making fun of this whole tradition of European male nudes and saying, I'm now taking control of that. And from now on, I'm painting the woman's point of view. What incredible and power that she yeah. has in, in grabbing that for herself. That's amazing. Yeah. And it was painted the same year or so when the first 40 years of her life, she and her mother and her two sisters, because the father abandoned them. They just left when he, she was very young. And the money was all really the mother's side of the family. Well, the first 40 years, she and her mother and two sisters spent most of the year traveling in Europe. And she spent it studying with art tutors, but also just living in art museums, studying art and art history. So this is really her statement on coming to New York with the war breaking out in Europe and moving back to New York full time saying, and see, she comes in New York and she sees the skyscrapers and modern New York. And she really understands that in 1914, New York City is really now going to be the center of the world. It's going to, it, that is the new modern 20th century city, that the world is going to be leaving Europe behind, but innovation is now really happening in New York when she sees these steel skyscrapers going up all over Manhattan. And she writes this wonderful poem where she kind of, uh, let's see if I can even read part of it to you. Um, Hold on. She says here, then back to New York and skyscrapers had begun to grow and front stoop houses started to go and life became quite different. And it was as though someone had planted seeds and people sprouted like common weeds and seemed unaware of accepted things and did all sorts of unheard of things. And out of it grew an amusing thing, which I think is America having its fling. And what I should like is to paint this thing. And so this nude self-portrait is like her saying, okay, the, I've, I'm giving up this tradition of European painting. And she paint, had trained to paint perfectly realistic academic European painting. She could paint realistic paintings like photographs. But at this point, she's saying, I'm giving this up. I'm going to create a new style of painting that doesn't exist, but that captures the excitement and modernism of, of American 20th century life. And that's what she did. It feels like she's so prescient in so many ways that she made this sort of announcement about America becoming the center of the art world decades, really, before it became solidified within the world culture that it was the center. So that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing that's been so wrong about her. People write about her work as she's faux naive, childlike, that her works are fantasies. But one of the things that I, I it, it's so amazing, if you look at her paintings, 
not only are most of the figures portraits that you can identify from Eleanor Roosevelt to Marcel Duchamp to Carl Sandburg, you can literally, their portraits, uh, Charles Demuth, Alfred Stieglitz, O'Keefe, but I've identified the actual buildings in most of the things and many of the paintings, there's a painting at Yale called Christmas, where for years it was, they said it was Rockefeller Center because there's this group of people skating around a Christmas tree in it. It's not Rockefeller Center. If you actually look at the painting, there's a statue of Christopher Columbus on a column. Oh, wow. It's Columbus Circle. Yes. And all of the buildings around it, I can identify from the time. In fact, they're banks that existed at the time. And she has all these little automobile showrooms on the lowest level of the buildings. And that part of Upper Broadway where Columbus Circle comes out used to be called Automobile Row. Oh my goodness. And at that time, all the automobile showrooms in the city were located there. And you see the underground of the subway. The subway ended uh, during in the early 30s on 59th Street and Columbus Circle. So she documented the architectural growth of New York City in her paintings. She factually researched. When she did her cathedral paintings, she wanted to put Salvation Army figures in there. So she went to the Salvation Army so she could exactly copy their uniforms. Oh she wanted Grace Moore, who was a singer at an inauguration ceremony to put in one of her paintings. So she found out who her hairdresser was and had her hair done on the day Grace Moore had her hair done so she could do an exact portrait of her. I mean, that's how careful she was. Yes, you're talking about the professionalism, someone who takes her job so seriously. That right. is going the extra mile for sure. So I love you talking about this, uh, that she's so able to very specifically render people, but then thinking about that nude self-portrait that it looks like Parker Tyler, and then also is it the artist's sister, Eddie, who had some hand in possibly retitling it or referring to it just as the nude or a nude? No, it, it's it's so funny that she never exhibited that nude self-portrait and the other thing is the sisters everybody says oh the sisters they were so close they called they, they call them the steties she and her younger sister the three there were three sisters who lived with their mother until their mother died so into their 60s she and her youngest sister couldn't stand each other <laughs> I mean, and, and the younger sister, even though Florine designed the sets and costumes for one of the first avant-garde operas designed, you know, written by Gertrude Stein and did these fantastic world-renowned at the time stage set costumes in cellophane, Eddie didn't even go to any of the performances um, it, of this opera. I mean, she oh made all these excuses. Oh, wow. Um, so it, it's, she's really, they really didn't get along. But the sisters never commented or went to see each other's work, um, which is really interesting. And it's, it's, they didn't really show each other what they were working on. So it was, this nude was called a nude and I found it, 
um, in, with a lot of other works that were labeled not by Stedheimer in a box at Columbia University when I was first doing my dissertation. But when I looked at it, you can tell just by looking at the facial features that it's Stedheimer. Yes. Um, so it, I don't I don't know why she just it, it was just called a nude um, because anyone can look at it and know that from comparing it to photographs that it's her. Was it an issue of her not wanting to identify herself because she was concerned that it would bring some sort of controversy to the family because women no, didn't typically? No, because it was hung up um, in her in her studio. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, and it's so funny because. There are a lot of, um, she made very, first of all, Sethomer was not a nice woman. Mm. You know, we all want people, we all like to think of older women as being these nice little old ladies. Stethammer had a really wicked sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I mean, her poetry is hysterical. Like the one, the very feminist one, Little Miss Mouse wanted her own house so she married Mr. Mole and got only a hole. I love you know, that. I mean, really just, uh, and she made fun of her friends and her paintings. Gertrude Stein's brother, who was a collector, Leo Stein, was very hard of hearing. So he had this hearing aid that you held in your hand to help you hear. You put it up to your ear. It was like, that's what hearing aids were. Mm -hmm. And they had a friend named Avery Hopwood, who was a playwright, but he was known to be very boring. So in one of her paintings, Soiree, she has Avery Hopwood sitting in the middle and Leo Stein is sitting next to him. But Leo Stein is holding his hearing aid as far away as he can. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And there it is, right in the middle of the painting. I love and, it. And, you know, I mean, that's really nasty. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and her sister, Eddie, they were Jewish, but they were not practicing Jewish. They were among the wealthy hundred Jewish families of New York City, like the Guggenheims. They were related to, and the Seligmans. But Stedheimer was very proud that she never set foot in a synagogue. So they were culturally Jewish, not practicing. And they loved Christmas and they had Christmas trees. But Eddie, the youngest sister, really didn't like that they had Christmas trees. And she wrote to one of her friends that, that she really didn't like that. She didn't believe that as being Jewish, they should have Christmas trees. So when Stedheimer painted her portrait of Eddie... She painted her floating in the sky with an enormous Christmas tree. <laughs> but then she put the burning bush of Moses in the top of it. Mm, my I mean, it, it, it's like, why? She just wasn't very nice. Yeah. But again, so, so funny in her, her evilness in some ways, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned her being an, a wonderful poet, but also the designer. I love that information about her uh, designing the opera uh, backdrops. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about these other elements of interest and parts of her career? 
Yes, I mean, she, the other thing is she's an incredible multimedia artist because she, in, in 1912, she was very influenced by the Ballet Russe. Diaghilev made the ballet before a man named Diaghilev created the Ballet Russe in Paris was very boring. It was formal, just classical ballet um, ballet dancers on a very plain backdrop, no co fancy costumes, no backdrop. And he came in with these Russian dancers and brought in fantastic designers, fantastic music, fantastic, wonderful, colorful costumes. And he believed in integrating the best music, the best costumes, the most fantastic design, all along with the best dancers. And Stedheimer was very influenced by that. And when she saw this in 1910, and she, by the way, was not cons very conservative and spinster-like, even though she didn't marry, because she saw Nijinsky, the great ballet dancer, in um, Afternoon of a Fawn, which was shut down because it was considered so scandalous, because at the end, he enacts, he's masturbating on a small... Uh, scarf mm. and they critics screamed that it was degenerate and she writes in her uh, diary that he was the most beautiful male dancer she'd ever seen so she was not the least bit conservative even in her 20s anyway she immediately went home and in 1912 designed her own small figures with beautiful three-dimensional three costumes for her own ballet for the ballet russe it never was produced, but in 1930s, Virgil Thompson, the composer, thought of a ballet, uh, an opera with uh, Gertrude Stein, the writer, and they were looking for a designer for the costume design and uh, stage sets. And he came into Stedheimer's studio. She had this wonderful double story studio. And she had curtains out of this brand new material called cellophane. She had these huge cellophane curtains and she made flowers out of cellophane and she had her paintings on the walls. Her paintings, a lot of them were 60 by 50 inches. Oh, wow. And she made her own frames. And many of her frames were three-dimensional. One of them has a huge three-dimensional gilt eagles. And they have big, like, gilded brown dells on them. I mean, or they have big curtains made out of wood with gilt tassels. Nobody at the time, I've been told this by frame historians, made three-dimensional frames and designed them like Stettheimer. She also made three-dimensional furniture that matched her frames. So she intended her paintings to hang above her own furniture, which she had in her studio, that all went together as an installation. Um, and they were wonderful. And he came in and he saw this and he said, you must do the stage designs and costumes. So she did. And while when the opera opened in 1934, the critics were a little mediocre about Gertrude Stein's libretto, but they raved because Stedheimer took the entire backdrop of the stage and wrapped it in this fabulous cellophane, which glittered when it was lit. And she made tiny little dolls and put them in velvet and 
pearls and fantastic materials in these little shoe boxes for every single act of the opera. Um, and then they, those became the costumes. And the performers were all African-American because Virgil Thompson thought they could enunciate Gertrude Stein's words. And this was the first opera um, that was ever performed by all African-Americans. Wow. So it was a huge hit. It was enormously innovative. It actually influenced George Gershwin went to it and it influenced him to write the opera Porgy and Bess. Oh, my goodness. Um, and it became a, 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 an enormous publicity for um, Florence Detheimer in terms of the stage sets and costume designs. And in fact, there are lots of ads from the time of like Saks Fifth Avenue designing cellophane dresses and, and you know, did windows based on Four Saints and Three Acts. So it's kind of fun. I love that. I mean, obviously, she was such an avant-garde uh, master in so many ways. Yes, if, she if, was. I love that. If I was to recommend or if you were to recommend where people could go see her works, where could they go soak up some Florine Stedheimers? Well, there are two places right now, especially in New York. One is the Metropolitan Museum for a long time now has these her four major cathedral works. They're huge. They're 60 inches high with these big, gorgeous frames. And they are what she considered the four main in a new stars of New York, cathedrals of Broadway, which are images of the first theatrical talking motion pictures of Broadway in 1929. The cathedrals of Wall Street, which is George Washington and the New Wall Street at the New Deal. Um, the cathedrals of Fifth Avenue, which is hysterical. It's a, a wedding on St. Patrick's Cathedral. But because she thought marriage took away a woman's creativity, she didn't believe in marriage. You will see all the figures. They're little teeny portraits of the, the bridal um group. The, the groom is beautifully a little portrait. You see a group of artists. You can see Stenheimer's sisters and little Rolls Royce. You can see Charles Lindbergh up in the corner. But the bride's face is totally erased. It's a little mass of white fuzz. Oh, wow. And if you look carefully, you can also see there's a little altar boy with his staff who's lifting the bride's dress and trying to peek under it. But anyway, <laughs> that's the Cathedrals of Fifth Avenue. And then the fourth one is the Cathedrals of Art, which has the center of it is the big staircase at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And at the left is the Museum of Modern Art with a lot of the Picassos in it. And at the right, the brand new Whitney Museum of Art. And it's at the moment those three museums were all competing with each other. So those four huge paintings are at the Modern. And then, I mean, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then when it reopened a few years ago, the Museum of Modern Art opened with a gallery totally dedicated to Florine Stedheimer and friends. Oh, wow. And they not only have two major paintings of hers, but they have a beautiful five panel gilded screen, which Stedheimer made, as I said, her furniture, which has large 
raised gold figures she made of herself and three sisters or two sisters and her brother. So there's a lot of Setheimer, New York. And if you don't live in New York, most of the major museums across this country have a Stedheimer painting. And I would say a lot of them, hopefully now with the book, are starting to bring them and put them on the walls. Oh, gosh, I hope so. And you've truly have made me put her on my personal art history bucket list because now I next time I come up to New York, next trip I take, I can't wait to go see her works. So thank you for bringing this fascinating artist to to my attention and hopefully to the attention of the listeners for Art Curious. So I appreciate so much you being with me today to talk about Florine. Oh, you're very welcome. What my greatest wish is, is that from now on, all art history books or all books on early 20th century art, Florine is there prominently. Oh, I second that wholeheartedly. Thank you so much again, Barbara. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning into this bonus episode featuring Barbara Blumick and her latest book, Florine Stettheimer, A Biography. We've only got a couple of weeks left until we premiere Art Curious Season 11, so I will be back in your ears soon enough. Until then, take care and stay curious.